Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. It is the light to our feet and the lamp to our path. You prayed that we would be sanctified by your word, which is truth. You've given us your Holy Spirit to lead us into that truth and give us understanding of all the things that you've presented to us in your word. And you tell us time and time again that you want us to know you. And here, in the book we hold before us, you have spoken to us. We just have to stop being so stubborn and listen. So I pray, Father, that you would help us listen tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, it's going to, there we go. So Absalom has come into the city. He has disgraced his father by essentially, I mean, so the ten women that David left behind were his concubines, but in that culture, uh, a concubine, the only reason you would have a concubine and not make her a wife is then her offspring would not be in line for the throne. But essentially, a concubine was still a wife. Um, She had all the other rights and privileges that a wife would have, just that her kids wouldn't be in line for the throne. Um, The problem there is that Absalom slept with all ten of the concubines that David left behind, essentially having sex with ten of his mothers-in-law. No, his stepmothers. Ten of his stepmothers, not his mothers-in-law. Ten of his stepmothers. Now, there is the real problem with polygamy that nobody ever talks about. If you marry one woman, you have one set of in-laws. If you marry, Solomon had 300 wives, which means he had 600 in-laws. Now, I know some people really love their in-laws, and and mine are growing on me again. Uh, but I could you imagine that many mother-in-laws? Wow, you're cooking the turkey wrong. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So was I. So was I. Wow, that guy's a jerk. I mean, just Thanksgiving would be horrid. All right, all right. I'm I'm going off on a rabbit trail. So he's disgraced his father. He's gathered an army to him. Really, everybody in Israel who is now loyal to um, Absalom to chase after and kill his father. David is in Mahanaim. This is where, if you remember, um, and you probably don't because I didn't until I studied for this week, this is where Laban caught up with Jacob, Jacob when he had fled with his wives and children and livestock. This is also where Jacob heard that his brother Esau was coming to meet him. The name means double camp or two companies that referred to the blessings God had given Jacob. So just to give you a little context, where David was staying would have been very famous among the Jewish people. Chapter 18. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and of hundreds over them. David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, 
and Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. Um, Something just, I want to stop for just a moment and remind you. When David first fled, there was a guy, this guy, by the way, Ittai the Gittite. And let's see, I got to find it. Now there's just silence on the other end. Wow, why can't I find it? Anyways, um, that's all right. It's in the last few chapters. As David's fleeing, Ittai comes up to him with all of his household and says, Hey, I'm coming with you. And David goes, You just showed up in Jerusalem yesterday. This has nothing to do with you. Why would you go with me? And Ittai, the Gittite, says, wherever you go, I'll go. Whatever happens to you, that's what's going to happen to me. And David goes, fine. 1519. Like I was saying, it was in the last few chapters. 1519. So here, right, and we're, we're not talking weeks or months, we're talking days. David puts Ittai the Gittite over one-third of the military force that he had now gathered to him. And something I didn't mention because I didn't know, I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes, him being a Gittite actually means he was a Philistine. Probably made the Philistine lords quite angry and ran for his life and sought refuge with David um, because he knew the Philistines wouldn't mess with David. But you got to love David's level of trust here. I've known you for three days. Take a third of the army and go out to battle for me. And then you got to love Ittai the Gittite because he could, well, you know, I, I said I'd come with you. I didn't say I was going to fight the war. You know what he does? He takes a third of the men. He goes, you got it, king. Got to love that. I just love that guy. Something about him. All right. That puts us where were we at? <laughs> I will surely go out myself. The end of verse two. Verse three. The people answered, you shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by the hundreds and by the thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown, therefore, before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, And the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule, which was under him, went on. It's a loyal beast right there. So Joab... Now, oh, sorry. So now a certain man saw it and told Joab, 
I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him. Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver in a belt. The man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai saying, beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king and you yourself would have set yourself against me. All right, so this guy knows Joab. He knows Joab's a snake. He's like, if I had done it, and you had given me a reward, and then David found out that Absalom was dead, and as soon as he asked you who did it, you'd be like, that guy, that guy right there. <laughs> then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. So in all of this, David, I think, is blaming himself. Right? He has a large army. He orders them. He puts commanders over them. And he says, be good to Absalom. Right? The men insist that David doesn't go out with them. Right? Their advice is wise. Right? They could kill half of us. But it won't mean a thing because they're after you. So he goes, okay, I'll stay back. And even though he was a rebellious son, David still loved Absalom. I'm very grateful for that. Because even though we are rebellious, God still loves us. And God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now the battle goes all David's way. 20,000 men are killed. Absalom is killed. Absalom gets stuck in a tree. Remember, um, it was a few chapters back that he would shave his head every year. And the measure of his hair would be six pounds. Right? Dude had some major curls going on. And as a result, he goes under this tree, a low-hanging branch. His hair gets all tangled up in the tree, right? This is, this is why you should, he should have put it up in a ponytail or something. I don't know what they did back then. No, well, um, if you put it up in a man bun, then his death was all the more justified. Um, but this guy comes and says, I'm going to kill him. All right, he says, I saw him. Joab says, why didn't you kill him? And the dude's like, because I'm not an idiot, Right? That's essentially what his answer is. I'm not that stupid. So Joab goes, but apparently Joab saw wisdom in the young man's statement. Because he takes ten guys with him, and they all kill him. So in the end, eleven people put a spear, sword, whatever, to Absalom. So there'd be no way to know which one of them actually killed him. 
you know, so Joab, man, he's a snake, but he's wily. So Joab blows the trumpet to end the conflict. He calls the forces back and he restrains David's army from killing all the Israelites. They bury Absalom in a pit. And then we get this little blurb about Absalom's monument. So he didn't have a son. So he set himself up a big pillar and he called it Absalom's monument. Um, There are those, because they know where the King's Valley is in Israel. And there are those who claim that they have found the pillar that's Absalom's monument. Unfortunately, Absalom's name isn't on it or on any of the other pillars. So who knows? But at least they know where the, um, where the valley, the, the, the king's valley is. All right, you ready? Verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him on his, of his enemies. Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day. For you shall take the news another day, but today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Um, we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But here's the thing. I think Joab was afraid that David was going to kill whoever brought him the news. And Ahimaaz was the son of one of the priests. And he didn't want that for David, right? So even though Joab's a snake, he is constantly looking out for David's well-being. Um, and so he tells Ahimaaz, no, 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 we'll send the Cushite. Right? So they send the Cushite. And Ahimaaz, verse 22, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, fine. <laughs> Actually, it says, so he said to him, run. But in my mind, he was like, just shut up and go. Then Imhaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. And David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked and there was a man running alone. The watchman cried out and told the king and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Now, how often did this guard watch Ahimaaz run so that when he saw him running, he's, oh, I know that guy. A little creepy. No, I saw you on the bicycle one day wearing a black coat. I knew who you were. Yeah, well, that's fair. That's fair. Because you have a large profile. I have a large profile. <laughs> maybe, maybe Ahimaaz had a funny run. Um, so the king said, he, he's a good man. Verse 28. So Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, all is well. He bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what that was about. Anybody see a problem there? He just lied. All you have to do is go back to verse 20. 
Today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Joab told him, point blank, Absalom is dead. He gets to David. Oh, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm not sure what happened to Absalom. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. That's a really fancy way of saying, uh, yes, he's dead. So I, I just, I find this really fascinating. Um, this is going to lead David into great mourning, right? You read verse 33. King was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O Absalom, my son, my son. So he's heartbroken. Um, and he just goes into this great mourning, having a desire that he had died instead of his son. From a fatherly perspective, I get this. I mean, if it was me or one of my kids, take me. I got no problem with that. Um, from the perspective of him as a king, this was a bad idea. At least to be so public. So let's talk about the running of Ahimaaz. We're just going to kind of back up for a moment. It's okay to run. But you'd better have something to say. I think there's a lesson in that for us. Too many people today want their voices to be heard, but they don't have anything to say. I mean, if you spend any time on the internet whatsoever, you will find all these people online who are convinced that they know everything, that they're right about everything, that they alone have the knowledge that nobody else can share with you. And, you know, and, and oh, and then there's people that listen to them. And I'm not saying that everybody on the internet is bad. Um, you know, we're on the internet right now. <laughs> but what I'm saying is there's a lot of hucksters out there, but they're just so desperate to have their voice heard. They don't care if what they're saying is true. Uh, we call them news anchors. <laughs> Roy would have appreciated that joke. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. You see, we have a message. We have a voice that can be heard. So it's good for us to run. And run in such a way as to win the prize. Now let's get back to Ahimaaz's lie. Right? He, was, he didn't want to give the bad news, so he hemmed and hawed around it. The Cushite came in and he goes, yep, he's dead. Right? He, he did it in a fancier way, but yeah, he's dead. And I think this is a testimony to what we see in a lot of the church world today. We see a lot of people. They want to tell people how much God loves them. They want to tell people you know, how valuable they are. They want to tell people that... In believing in Jesus, they'll have eternal life, right? And, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad 
or any of those things are wrong. But that's only part of what Scripture teaches us. What they don't want to talk about is God's righteousness. They don't want to talk about truth that can't be compromised. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about judgment. And we have to tell the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like. This is what Paul said in Acts 20, verse 26 through 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. There will come a day when James 3.1 will be enacted upon me. Let not many of you become teachers, for you shall receive the stricter judgment. And there's a lot that I'm going to have to answer for, as it were. Uh, not that it has anything to do with my salvation, but my reward. But the one thing that I truly hope is that I am faithful with the word of God. Because I do not want to stand before God and have him tell me that I messed his word up. Then think of all that David was willing to forgive. Right? You, you have this, this kid who turned the hearts of Israel against the father, that he stormed Jerusalem with a military force, making it so David had to flee, took over David's house, had sex with David's concubines on a in a tent on the roof in front of the whole city and then mustered a military force and went out in an attempt to kill his father. And David said, I wished it was me. God did just that. Right? If you think about the list of our wrongs against God, about all that we've done, about all the mistakes we've made, he would be right to kill any one of us. But instead, he sent his son Jesus to take our place so we would not have to die for our own sins. John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Chapter 19. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day, as people who were ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and he cried out with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants for today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, that it would have pleased you well. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, 
If you do not go out, no one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. The king arose and sat in the gate. And they told the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. So Joab rebukes David. And this rebuke is telling him that his behavior has put the people who fought for him and saved him and his family to shame. Joab perceives that David would have been happier if all of his servants had died and Absalom had lived. Now, Joab doesn't do a lot right, does he? But here, he hits the proverbial nail right on the head. And he warns David straight up. He goes, listen, if you don't go out there and tell these guys who just saved your butt that they did a good job, then they're all going to leave and it's going to be worse for you than anything that's happened up to this point. And David sees the logic in that. So he goes out in the gate. Uh, we're not really told if he gave, um, you know, like a, a speech or if he just spoke to the men individually or in groups, but he heeded Joab's advice. Now here, I don't necessarily think that Joab is protecting David as much as he's protecting the kingdom. Because at this point in time, you got about half the nation, uh, right? You just had a civil war, half the nation following Absalom, maybe a little more. Um, David routs them. And so all these men flee. And then if his military abandons him, well, that's going to leave the kingdom very vulnerable. So I do think um, it was much more for the kingdom's sake than David's. So in reality, I do think, and I mentioned this a little bit ago, I think David was blaming himself for what Absalom had become. David knew this was his fault because of his sin with Bathsheba, his sense of guilt for his sin, and the devastation it was bringing to his family and bringing to the nation. It all brought David the sense of wishing he was dead. And guilt has a way of causing great psychological damage to us, both emotionally and spiritually. And although David was forgiven, he was still racked with guilt because he sees the consequences of his actions. What's the cure for guilt? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And at that point, we have to believe the word of God. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote that I really wish I'd written down because I'm going to butcher it. Um, but he said something to the effect that how dare you withhold forgiveness from yourself when God has forgiven you? Do you really think you're a better judge of your character than he is? <laughs> it was, it's something like that. You know, and if the Bible promises us that when we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, it's okay to let it go. It doesn't mean that there might not be consequences. It doesn't mean that it might not come up because we have an enemy that loves to bring up our past. But we let it go. Verse 9. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. 
He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? You are my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. Why, then, are you the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. So they sent this word to the king, Return you and all your servants. And the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go meet the king and escort the king across the Jordan. And Shammai, the son of Gera, a Benjamite who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet the king. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. So there's a little bit of confusion, right? Well, the king's gone. So we, we, we anointed Absalom. Absalom's dead. Why don't we bring back the king? And David tells Zadok the priest, he goes, go to the elders and basically shame them for not asking me to come back yet. And so they do. And it works. And Judah goes out to welcome their king home because he's bone of bone and flesh of flesh, right? These were his relatives. And then David gets very politically savvy. Remember Amasa, the, the cousin, like 12 times removed that we talked about last week? Amasa was related to Joab, who was related to David, which means that Amasa and David, uh, even though it was several times removed, were related. Amasa, if you recall, was the commander of Absalom's forces. So David goes, you know what? Why don't you come and be commander over my forces instead of Joab? Now, this had to be political for one very simple reason. Joab had just cleaned Amasa's clock. Right? Jo the, the, the military under Joab's supervision, along with his brother Abiathar and Ittai the Gittite, just wiped out 20,000 of those who followed after Absalom. Amasa apparently wasn't a terribly good leader. So this is purely political. And it works. So not only do the elders want him back, but he seeks a path to unite Israel by not killing Amasa, but essentially giving him a promotion and position in David's government because Amasa being the commander of Absalom's army would have made him the natural successor to Absalom after his death since Absalom didn't have kids. So just... Some good, there's some good kinging going on there. So then we hear about Shammai, Ziba, and a thousand men of Benjamin coming to meet David and escorting him over the river. They bring a ferry to bring his family over the river. And so here we go. Because now we got to deal with some of the aftermath about what happened. 
So now Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. You guys remember him? Cursing David, throwing rocks at him. Abishai going, can I just go cut that dude's head off? David like, no, 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 maybe God told him to curse me, you know? So he falls down before the king. And he said to the king, verse 19, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me. Or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord the king. But Abishai, I love this guy. (laughs) Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shemai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointing. He's like, come on, David. You wouldn't let me cut his head off before. Now he's admitting the wrong. Can I cut his head off now? David said, verse 22, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? I'm kind of thinking that statement, because we've seen David use it in a derogatory way towards Joab and Abishai multiple times. You sons of Zeruiah might, might be a, like a phrase that we use, that, that you're a son of something. But uh, I'm, just, I'm just thinking that's probably, I don't know, that's just where my mind goes because I have issues. Shall any man be put, or sorry, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king swore to him. So this is fantastic. Um, in all honesty, David had every right to put this guy to death. David had every right to let Abishai kill him, right? Because of what this man had done, David could have done that. But he's trying, right? We're going back to politics here. He's trying to unite a kingdom that just went through a civil war. And he knows that if he starts lopping heads off, it's going to be a lot harder to do that. Now, what we should note, though, is that David doesn't actually forgive him. He just promises not to kill him that day. Because when we get a little farther on, well, it's actually when we get to 1 Kings, um, David got around this promise, right? He goes, I will not kill you. So when Solomon becomes king, he goes, hey, you do it. (laughs) Loophole, right? So Solomon did, though, because remember, Solomon was a pretty wise fella. He did give Shammai a chance. He said, I'll let you live as long as you stay in Jerusalem. So Shammai moved into Jerusalem. He lasted three years. Then some of his servants ran away and he went to get them. And Solomon found out and killed him. Well, Solomon didn't do it. He had someone else do it. But what I do think is really interesting here is David, who has been forgiven so much, isn't really being forgiving. Right? And partial forgiveness is not true forgiveness. And this is often what we do. I have a great quote from Pastor Chuck here. I love this quote. I'll bury the hatchet, but I'll leave the handle out so I can find it again. Right? I forgive you. But the moment you make me mad, I'm going to bring it up again. Or whatever. And so because we have a hard time giving complete forgiveness... We then project that onto God, that he only partially forgives us. But this is not true. God's forgiveness is complete. He has taken our sin completely away in Christ. Now, 
we have to repent of our sin. If, if there's a non-believer, you have to come to Christ and be forgiven to begin with. And as a believer, if you mess up, you have to repent of that sin. And if possible, you can try to make it right. That's not always a good idea. But once we confess to God, our forgiveness is complete. And that is mind-boggling. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I love that verse. You guys know that if you send one plane traveling east and one plane traveling west with an unlimited fuel supply, they never have to stop. And you will continue going east till Jesus comes back. That's how far he's cast our sin from us, in infinite distance. Micah 7.19 He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Just incredible. Verse 24 Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was that when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, Why did you not go out with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like an angel of God, therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Because remember, he had given all the land to Ziba. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Now, when this first came up, I said, Either Ziba's lying, or when we get to this place, Mephibosheth is lying. One of them is lying. Well, here's the problem. How do we know which one? David clearly did not know which one was lying. That's why they both lived and he was willing to split the land between them after giving it all to Ziba. Now, here's my thing. I'm thinking Mephibosheth is trying a little too hard. Just me, right? There's nothing in the text that says he's being insincere here. But just look at some of the things he says, right? So he shows up in rags, hadn't trimmed his mustache, hadn't taken care of his feet, right? He was just a mess, which really wouldn't be all that hard to fake. Oh, my Lord, O King, my servant deceived me. Right? My Lord, the King, is like the angel of God. My father's house was nothing, but you brought me to your table. Oh, let him have all the land. I'm just so happy you're back. What is that phrase, methinks thou dost protesteth too much? I just... I am inclined 
If I, if I were put on the spot and had to make a choice, I think Zebo was telling the truth. It's just me. Because up to this point, Zeba has been nothing but loyal to Mephibosheth. And, and what would he have to gain? Working for Mephibosheth, that guy had already made, would have made him very wealthy. So I'm, if I was put in a corner, I would think that Zeba was the one telling the truth. Uh, but David couldn't figure out, so he splits the land, right? So now we get Barzillai, who we saw. This was one of the men who came and helped David, brought him a bunch of uh, uh, supplies and whatnot. Verse 31. And Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mena, uh, Mahanai, that, that place, for he was a very rich man. Right? That stinks. I pronounced that correctly earlier. Now it won't come out. And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Right? It was his birthday. It may not have been his birthday. It may have just been a saying, but maybe it was his birthday. Can I discern between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I, can, I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do it for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, he, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. So this Barzillai, right, a good guy who um, took care of David, took care of the people who were with him, and we're not told who Chimham is. At least not here. I probably should have looked it up. My guess is it's Barzillai's son. And so he, he wants, oh, just take him, right? What's the point? I'm old. I can't hear anything. I can't taste anything. Just let me die at home. But you can bless Chimham instead. And David goes, all right, I'll do whatever you ask. And he kisses him and sends him on his way. Verse 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king his household and all of David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. I like this. They start arguing over, basically, no, we like the king better than you. No, 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 we like the king better than you. 
right? Now, it's true that the men of Israel were the first to ask him to come back. That's why David sort of rebuked Judah, saying, why are you the last to ask? But ultimately, um, the men of Judah get angrier than the men of Israel, so the men of Israel back off. Um, Now, I do see a little bit of foreshadowing here, because eventually... The ten tribes will split from Judah under Solomon's son Rehoboam after Solomon's death. So just two generations later. So just me, I mean, I know that we don't treat the book like a novel. It's not a novel, right? This is historical narrative. These things actually happened. But nevertheless, eventually those ten tribes that here are saying, we have more of a stake in the king of David or in King David than you do will eventually say, we have no stake in the house of David. And they split the kingdom. Right? So everything's good. David came home. Nobody's dying today. The the people are so excited that David's back. They're arguing over who loves him more. The enemies of the king are dead. He comes home in peace. Everything's going to be fine from here on out, right? until verse 1 of the next chapter. That's how long it lasts. Next week, we're going to see further rebellion by, against David. We're going to see further treachery by Joab. Uh, but that's next week. So until then, let's pray, and we can rejoice in the great love and forgiveness that we have in God through Jesus. Father, thank you so very much for your great love. Thank you That when you looked at us, you decided that the death of your son was worth our salvation. And to this day, when we make mistakes, you offer us complete forgiveness. What a glorious gift we have. We give you all the glory for it. Pray that you would bless us throughout the rest of our week and the things that need to be done. Pray, Father, that your hand would be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.